Hello, welcome to today's episode of From the Margins, Perspectives on Architecture. Good morning, good evening, good night. I'm your host, Germán. I'm here today with Emanuel Ortega, better known as Babelito, one half of one of my favorite podcasts, Latinos Who Lunch. I want to start this episode basically fangirling. I'm very excited to have you here since it was uh, listening to you guys, what basically pushed me to begin this podcast. We can go in detail later about the lack of black and brown uh, voices in architecture and design in academia, and hence this space. But yes, it was you guys that definitely pushed me to start this. So I normally begin this podcast asking about how you've been doing during the quarantine. But now that the semester has started and that you're back teaching, how is that going? I would like uh, to start here. How's that going for you guys? How is that going for you? How is that crazy time teaching online is going for you? <clears throat> well, it's it was crazy um, because I didn't know if I had a job. So I am a visiting assistant professor of colonial Latin American art history, the University of Illinois at Chicago. And my contract was over. And of course, everybody wants to give me tenure track, but nobody has money for that. So the quarantine happened and all of a sudden nobody had no money and I was about to be out of a job. I had two campus visits, two interviews, in nada. So it was a little nerve wracking for me, but I was like, fuck it, I'll work at Starbucks and I'll write my book. I mean, it's what it is. Like our peoples have been <laughs> struggling yes. for since <laughs> right? Um, so... So I was a little, first it was a little shocking, but then I was like, whatever. And then I had to pack my house, my, I mean, my apartment. And two weeks before I moved, they gave me a contract. They made me a visiting clinical professor. So I had to put together. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's better than visiting professor. I don't know. I just know that it's not tenure track, so I don't care. Um, so I, um, no, I do care. I'm very thankful for my position. <laughs> so I um, I had to struggle to put together a 100 class, an art 100, which I thought before because I like to get them young, right? So if I can get mm -hmm. the freshmen, it's better. It's better because by the time they grad students, they're very jaded and they think they know everything. So it's impossible mm -hmm. to get to them. But when they're freshmen, like fresh out of high school, that's when you can, you know, slap them, not physically, but like ideologically. Yes. And, and shape their minds. Right. And get them woke. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. But I had to put together a course in like a week. I am recording all my lectures. I got married to a former YouTuber and he's the one who was doing all the editing for me. Finally, he taught me how to do everything. Um, it's a lot of work. I, I decided not to stay in Chicago because I wanted to be closer with family. So we moved to the middle of the desert in California and I love it. I, even though I'm so busy, so busy between writing gigs, um, um, recording the podcast, working on a series of educational YouTube videos that we can talk about later, um, 
preparing my classes, recording my classes, editing my classes, um, and then trying to exercise. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like a whole thing, but it's great. Like my family's so close. My family's in Vegas. So my birthday was this weekend. So everybody came down and we hey, all happy got- birthday. Thank you. Thank you. It was, we got really, really, really drunk. It was beautiful. Oh, so I cool. am in the desert. That's cool. Yes. I'm doing fine. Yes. That's great. So it sounds like a, like a good time. It sounds like you, you've been um, doing good. Uh, Philly is not as interesting as being in the middle of the desert. Philly is still <laughs> pretty much an epicenter of, covid and uh bad politics and uh what is this group of the the good guys or what is the like white supremacist group of people that i don't know what they call themselves that they've been coming and like steering shit and like making you know a mess whatever but i mean i've been home basically trying to write trying to finish my dissertation, trying to finish and, and defend soon. But basically, that, that's it. The best dissertation you could possibly do, half is the one that is finished. That is finished. That's what I've heard. Exactly. That's what I've been hearing. And that's what I've been trying to listen to friends that have finished. Exactly. Like the yeah. best thing that you can do is just to finish. The rest will be in the book. So just finish <laughs> get done and that's it because you get you get you get um you get candidacy right you become a phd candidate all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're eligible to like all this money and you're eligible it, like you're accepted in spaces that you were not before because maybe you got into a couple of like conferences as a colonial student but as a phd candidate <laughs> you're pretty much in as grandes ligas right so mm -hmm. You're in this weird liminal space where like you're part of it, but then everybody's like, so when do you graduate? Which I bet is like the worst question. It is the worst question. question you could exactly. Yeah. So I remember when I finished, man, I was going through it. I was going through it. It was like, I had very little money because I, I, I was, I was able to get a Mellon fellowship, but it barely paid anything. If it wasn't for the life of the PhD student. <laughs> right, for friends in New Mexico, shout out to La Judy, that she housed me. She was charging me a hundred bucks, and that was just to pay somebody to come and clean the room. It was great, basically. And, yeah, she was amazing, and um, but it was a lot going back and forth to Las Vegas, finishing a crazy relationship. It was just like a lot going on. The day that I finished, I remember I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was like, oh. I don't have to connect no theories in my head. Like, I don't have to think about these dumb martyrs. <laughs> like, I, I don't care about the Franciscans for the first time in the past 10 years. That was the best feeling of my life. So whenever wow. you're there, whenever you wake up in the middle of the night, not worried about your dissertation, text me. Can't Give wait, me. man. Can't, can't really wait. And I hope that it's like in like five to six months or less, yes. hopefully. But well, so I'll do the proper introduction, the like real introduction of our uh, interview. Um, well, I don't like to call this an interview podcast. It's more like a conversational podcast for our, our uh, invited uh, person today. 
So Emmanuel Ortega is a visiting professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He obtained his PhD at the University of New Mexico and has lectured nationally and internationally on the topics of images of autos de fe, 19th century Mexican landscape painting, and visual representations of the New Mexico Pueblo peoples in Novo Hispanic Franciscan martyr paintings, what he was actually just telling us. Uh, springing from his research interest, Ortega has curated in Mexico and the United States. In 2015, Ortega partnered with the Museo de Arte Religioso Ex Convento de Santa Monica in Puebla, Mexico, to create two art exhibitions based on recently restored paintings from their collections, one of which is now part of their permanent galleries. An essay titled Hagiographical Mystery and the Liminal Witness, Novo Hispanic Franciscan Martyr Portraits in the Political and the Politics of Imperial Expansion was published by the Brill in the spring of 2018. He is a recurrent lecturer for the Arquetopia Foundation for Development, the largest artist residency in Mexico. So um, aside from all of that, and aside from teaching, what are you doing now? Are you writing your book? Are you preparing? Uh, I've heard in the podcast that you are preparing the manuscript for the book. How's that going? Well, I'm I think I'm getting some funding for research, so I'm just going to pay somebody to do that job for me, but I'm working uh -huh. on the book proposal. Okay. As, a, as, a, as an academic, as a non-white academic, uh -huh. uh, <clears throat> you're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to go anywhere without a uh, book contract or an actual mm -hmm. book. So it's, it's, it's been very challenging, very challenging. So that's been interesting. So that's my goal. But again, I've been here since August and we haven't had a chance to, I haven't had a chance to sit down and work on just the book proposal, which it's the idea is to have it ready by the end of the year. I'm applying to things. Um, I, I just finished an essay for the very first comprehensive exhibition on La Malinche that's going to happen next year in the Denver Art Museum. I think it's traveling to Mexico, I'm not sure. Hmm. And there I'm developing a new methodology to look into Latin American colonial art um, based on sentimentality. And we can talk about that later. I also work on an essay that is under review in a like, big journal, hopefully goes through. Also looking at landscape painting and sentimentality and the way that Ben Humboldt basically fucked a lot of things for us no, and baby. then yeah. um and then i work I'm, I'm also working on our youtube channel it's called unsettling journey subscribe please um mm -hmm. and that's a lot of work because we're actually reaching out to scholars we're reaching out to people that want to help us contribute it's a labor of love we have no money but we had um scholars like um leah markey who's the director of renaissance studies at the um at the newberry library who's doing like recordings about a specific image we just booked gaudio dr gaudio michael gaudio who's an incredible scholar of 16th century printed culture of the americas and so they're 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 contributing so we're talking about in unsettling journeys we're developing a history of mestizaje what is to be what the myth of mestizaje so but we're taking mm -hmm. it back We're taking it back to Columbus and his medieval fantasies of cannibals in the Caribbean all the way to Frida fucking Kahlo and her bullshit. 
So cool. it, it's it's gonna be like I'm gonna be like I'm gonna say six or seven seasons, and it's a perfect opportunity to make this material and dialogues available to everybody. But also, it's an opportunity for us to reach to academic circles that normally um, academics like us are not allowed in, right? Because we're mm-hmm. not we have three books or we're not yes. sagradas, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean this is this is precisely what um, the podcast and uh, this new type of media is kind of like allowing us to get into like have more audience in a way and and i i kind of like am thankful for in for you know the pandemic and kind of like has allowed this this type of media to kind of like proliferate a little bit more and has allowed to to happen and to be more uh to have more audience and and this is really cool that it's happening i i checked a, a couple of your videos the other day and it's like really interesting and um i think that i didn't mention this at the beginning but so for the listeners babelito is one half of uh latinos who lunch one of the podcasts well i did mention that is one half of uh latinos who lunch one of the podcasts that that inspired the, the this podcast Uh, but it's a podcast that um, talks about many of the uh, Latinos and Latinx uh, issues in, in the United States. And, um, but also, uh, Babelito is uh, from Juarez, uh, from the same place that I am. And I would like to go... Exactly. And I would like to go back to that. And I would like to go back to precisely... Basically, the beginning, how uh, Juarez guy uh, ended up in American academia and teaching at Chicago University. <laughs> and kind of like go, go through the process of being a Mexican uh, academic in American academia and, and guide us through this, you know, process and how easy or complicated it is because um i'm sure that you have a lot to say about this and i would like to talk precisely about the 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 road of of getting to to that and getting to you know defending and then finding a job and precisely what you just started to mention in this in the at the beginning of the podcast and getting there So I have two versions. One is the one that solicits white tears according to how much money they want to pay me. And <laughs> the second one is the real story. So I don't know which one you want me to give you. The real one. Okay, let's the go. One you tell, the one you tell the, 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 the other one from Juarez. Okay, let's do it. So I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> That's basically the, the short answer. I... I I do think about it a lot, especially when I was going to campus. I was like, the campus, the campus scenic background is the it's the um, the skyscrapers of Chicago, which is gross because <laughs> development <laughs> is disgusting. Um, development, um, but also it's surreal because it's like fuck. I'm from Juarez, right? Like, what am I doing yeah. here? So I do think about it a lot. Um, well, actually, my husband and I were just talking about some of these ideas because 
when I graduated, my advisor said, you are graduating with your grandfather and your father in your shoulders, right? Like, mm. so I, 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 don't, I don't take that um, lightly. So I always been interested in art as a good little gay kid that I was. I was in theater. Um, I wanted to be part of La Escolta. I don't know how you say that. In, <laughs> I don't know how you say that. They don't even have it here, no? Because I don't know. It's like it's like a group of, like I don't know, seven women. This is in school. Like I don't know if it's changed. Yes, yeah, because then, there are four at the front and then three in the back. No, I think this formation. Three. Yes. Uh-huh. And then they're the ones that parade the flag around yes. the court because, like, Mexico every an Monday. Ex- it's an exemplary like place for the development of global nationalism and yeah. and there's plenty of scholars that talk about that from benedict anderson to claudio lamnitz but i remember like being like oh like i don't know like i always wanted to do something artistic and to me that was artistic even though i didn't know how much i wanted to be part of the empire but you know i got walking that school <laughs> yes but it was performative it's super performative but it's like yes. you get to just i don't know like i used to like go behind them and learn you know like (laughs) um but um we moved to el paso and i remember this very well which is kind of embarrassing but i remember there was an exhibition of photography um from my high school in the high school library and there was a a picture of atarahumara it was a totally ethnographic picture now that i think about it but back in the day i was like oh wow this is so beautiful i want to capture this moment so then I joined photography. I took my first art history class. I learned nothing except who Vincent van Gogh was. Um, <laughs> and then I got obsessed with art history. And, um, but I didn't know it was art history because the class wasn't called that. It's just like I learned about art and artists, right? Mm-hmm. So I was always inclined in Juarez. But this was, was in El Paso. This was in El Paso. Okay. And around that same time when I was junior, no, sophomore, no. Yeah, sophomore and freshman. Um, I used to cross the border because I had my parents, again, my grandparents, and my parents gave me that privilege. Um, I used to cross the border a lot. Sometimes I used to ditch school just to go hang out at a coffee shop called El Café Dalí. That was like my first claro. Oh, my God. <laughs> en el Pronaf. Sí, 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 sí. The people in Café Dalí knew who we were, and they knew that we were not, that we were like 13 years old as opposed to 18. So they will give us like alcoholic beverages in coffee mugs. Woo! <laughs> My friend get so drunk on the weekends. But anyway, notions of art develop, right? Through mm-hmm. like Pinturas de Dalí, through through like I had a little band when I was 13. We were called Los Apostoles de Nadie. We played once and we had like five songs, but not less. Um, yeah, because we were very darks. And then <laughs> um and then we moved to Las Vegas because that was in the late 90s. That was the boom of construction the in Vegas boom. and the construction worker. And I don't know how it is today, but Texas doesn't believe in unions. So we decided to move to, to Vegas. And that's where I decided to just go to school. And there was an art critic who, in retrospect, he's a total horrible human being. He's an asshole. His name is Dave Hickey. Um, and he was teaching theory of art. So I wanted to go to art history or art school just so I can take a class with him. 
needless to say, his writings to me at the back in the day, they were badass and I wanted to be a rock star art historian like he was. But I'm not going to get into it. Just Google it, loca. Uh-huh. So I between I, I went to, to photo school and then finally I took an art history class. And within five minutes, I was like, that's, that's it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, I remember just like learning about the Egyptians and just like iconography of the Egyptians. And to me, that was mind blowing, you know. Wow. And then I got my undergrad and, and, and I was so lucky because at the time where I was in my undergrad in Vegas, out of all places, there was a tiny, tiny, tiny little boom of museums. So we had a little Guggenheim um, Oh yeah, the, sure. In in yeah. Vegas, they opened a like a two rooms or something of the Guggenheim. Yes, by Red Kulhas yeah. or something like that. And the one where I worked as a as a um, dozen, which was like my dream job, by the way. Um, ay, Dios mío, qué tiempos aquellos. Um, <laughs> we had a convenio, like a relationship with the Saint Petersburg Museum in Russia. So we will get exhibitions like, like um, the, I think it was one about Egyptian way of the dead, which was all about what happens in the afterlife from like this, your soul crossing uh, version of the Nile that is 20 times larger than real life all the, the way. again. So we will have like six, 7,000 year old artifacts with Vegas tourists, you know, they will lean on the, on the, it was such a great gig and then we will have exhibitions of just European painting and I remember para que veas como cambian las cosas I always carried with me a pen of Frida Kahlo because I was like until they actually have women or brown artists or black artists I am not going to take off this pen I never took it off in the few years that they actually did their exhibitions but because I was a docent in the Guggenheim. I graduated, and after I graduated, I got a little recommendation from the director of the Guggenheim in Vegas so I can do an internship in Venice on the Venetian Guggenheim. So I did an internship there. But again, it was all about museums. I wanted to work in a museum. That's all I care about. Because I had no idea you could go to grad school. Like, as the first generation, both immigrant and grad student, I had no idea. It was just mm-hmm. like I was exploring. And then after that, I remember somebody asked me, you're going to go to grad school? I was like, what is that? They're like, you can get a master's in PhD in art history. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So I applied to New Mexico, and that was the only place that didn't ask for GREs. So I got in, and I was like, oh, shit, ¿y ahora qué hago? I remember the GRE. <laughs> I, I visited New Mexico. I was like, uh, Albuquerque. I stayed in like the bad part of the town, right? I remember I called my dad crying. Papá, está bien aquí. Yo no quiero aquí. <laughs> yes. The, my dad is like, don't worry. Like, we'll move you to the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. And, but, you know, I ended up living downtown. It's like, it was different. And then grad school changed everything for me. I was advised by a brilliant junior faculty, you know, and and those in, and among them is like one of my favorite people in the world. Her name is Kirsten Pipe Buick. Shout out, and I talk about Kirsten all the time in the podcast. Yes, 
Every time you hear me talk about race, gender, class, it's going to be through the lens of two people. It's going to be Kirsten in the University of New Mexico and Francisco Guevara, in, which is the director of Arquetopia. And I guess now mm-hmm. my husband, too, because some of those conversations, I mean, not some of those, him and I have these conversations all day, every day. So, like, my perspectives on these ideas are because of a conversation of these three um, people. And actually, your your conversation with um, Archetopia's director, it's one of the podcasts that I keep in my, you know, downloads. And I just keep, like, listening to it because it's, like, one of those things that you, of course, you will never get it at the first And like you keep just listening to it because there's always something that you listen and listen and listen. And you like, oh, this, oh, like this little thing that they mentioned, like there's always something, which by the way, there's, we need to talk about the anti-colonial, decolonial post, like all of that conversation, but we'll go to that later. (laughs) Let's do it. it. But yes, so. I finished my master's and then my advisor is, you're going to get a PhD. And I was like, ugh, okay, I guess we'll get a PhD. Five more years. <laughs> Six more years. <laughs> Wait, no, no tenía ni idea de lo que estaba haciendo. From the moment I saw that picture, that ethnographic gross picture of Ataromara that I thought it was the most beautiful thing. So I'm sure it was taken by a white student. To the time I graduated, I had no idea what I was doing. Because I am the first few steamboat size of my family. Like, yeah. education is valued to a certain degree. Like, my parents, like, no, I'm not to dismiss all the work that all my family has done to make this happen for me. But physical labor, to a certain degree, is more valuable in a lot of Latino yes. families, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I talked about in an essay that it was printed for the Latin American and Latinx um, art visual culture journal that the uc system the universities of california puts together um and it's precisely that what is it to be mexican teaching mexican art um so i decided to go to a phd i remember the year before i graduated crying in my office saying what the hell am i doing (laughs) and because like as a first generation immigrant student you not only have to first learn the language but then you have to learn the language of university system. And then mm-hmm. you have to learn the academic language, which I'm still doing. I'm still struggling. Yes. Um, and it's a lot. It's a lot because there's so many nuances that, yes, we all have to learn it. Pero pues, a mí las cosas no se me dan <laughs> in that realm. Like, it's not easy for me. So it's been, it's a constant struggle. Like, I just, I'm, I'm sending a blur for a press release for my position. And... Like I can, I, I, it's, I'm always so insecure about those, those things. But anyway, so I finished, um, and I started to apply to gigs, and this one came out. They wanted a colonial visiting professor. I never thought I was gonna get it. I remember I received the news that I got it as I was getting ready to go see Beyonce Coachella. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you best believe I had the best time of my life. I was like, this is it. Yeah, it was like. Beyonce and I got a job. Perfect. I lost my phone. Like that's how much fun I had. <laughs> um, it was great. It was great. But yeah, it's been a constant struggle. But the 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 
the constant from the moment I started teaching, which was in 2012, no, 2011, from 2011 to now, almost 10 years, the only thing that has been a constant for me has been teaching and has been my mm. student. When you have student, when you teach ex votos, and then you have students painting ex votos with your face in them, when you have... Oh, cool. When you have Iranian students writing about about Mudejar architecture in relationship to Cuban architecture, when uh. you have students advancing the methodologies that you're creating to the point that they actually have a better grasp than I do, when you have students that tell you that like call you just as a friend that text you all the time, when you have students that won't apply to the grad program if you leave, that's when you know that it's worth all the, the, the weird and crazy journey and all the pain and all the thousands of fucking applications. I've been applying to jobs since I was 16. Like I, I'm done, but I'm still doing it because I need to get to the place where I need to get in order to settle down and start my family. You know? Yes, yes. I mean... Totally get you. I'm there. I mean, I'm I'm applying every like, yes. I'm I'm about to finish, and I'm. You don't stop applying since two years Good before time. you. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I, I don't know if I should say this, or I don't fucking care. Um, <clears throat> I applied to a job that I did not get. A colleague of mine got it, which great person. Nothing against her. Mm. Or him, or them. <laughs> yes. Uh, but there's like a bitterness to me that this person, as a grad student, got the position, and not me being on the field for two years. But there's a million things that 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 made that decision happen, right? Is it institutional? Is it is it is it bigger than that? Is it personal? Like I don't know. And that's the thing, like, like, there's times where you know you, you're perfect for the thing and you're going to get it. And then you see who got it and you're like, what, you know? And it's, it's very discombobulating, especially right now, because right now, livelihoods depend on getting some of these gigs and some of this money. And during the quarantine, I applied to a lot of things. I got visiting ca campus visits, interviews all of that and nothing pan out. And it was, it was a lot, it was a lot. But as that is happening, I had my students writing letters to support for me to stay more time in UIC and external funding was found. So now I'm like the Toma, um, the Toma scholar and the Toma is a foundation that has a lot of money, but they have the biggest collection of South American um, colonial art. So they're the ones that are funding my position right now. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so that the, the tenure track position didn't happen for me in this round, but then I found out how much, how much I'm needed in, in, in Chicago. I am in a campus that used to be a Mexican neighborhood that they displace a lot of Mexican families in order to construct that campus. And huh. I'm teaching people's, kids from all kinds of backgrounds. And again, 
I have so many great students and you will see some of those students in my, in our YouTube channel. Cause they're going to start doing some just like reaction videos and more for the generation. I don't know. Um, so, so it's, it's worth it. Right. So that's what, that's what keeps it all centered. One in perspective. Yes. In perspective. Yes. Like one is that you have that, that students need you, you know, because they cling on to me. And two, it's because academia, as much as I hate it, it's still giving me a platform to advance the dialogues that I want to advance, you know, that, that yes, the podcast has been incredible, but it's, I can only get to certain places with the podcast, just like I can only get to certain places with academia. So so now with this YouTube series, we're trying to get to other places that we're not allowing the other two platforms. Like you have to find other ways. You have to keep find, looking for other ways because I'm not out there protesting, you know, every day, like some amazing people are doing it. So we have to find our ways of resisting and protesting and moving, moving this society forward in any way you can. And if I can do it through five students a semester, like me doy por bien servido, you know? Yes, and I mean this is this is the moment where one has to do with whatever tools we have. Right. And in many in many occasions we're exactly like uh, I'm not a citizen. I am not allowed or I am afraid to go out and and march and protest and do things because I can lose my visa, I can lose mm -hmm. my status as a as a as a student here as a yes as a student here and i can be you know get sent back to mexico and without even finishing my my dissertation and my my degree and so what can you do well open channels open discussions in yeah. in other ways in other in other in other platforms yeah. in other ways of discussing and and it's been it's been hard for me not to teach this semester as much as also I've been thankful for having the time to write and, and finish finally the, the dissertation just completed and be done. But it, yes, definitely the, the contact with students and, and the contact with, with the, the, like the feedback that students give you is, is pretty like awesome. I, I've been I've been in contact with like former students and, and former students have been in contact with me to ask me like for, you know, for recommendations on books, recommendations on this and that. And like, what do you think about this? I'm like preparing my my thesis uh, project. And what do you recommend me to read? What do you recommend me to see and look and this and that kind of like reaffirms you that yes all the like all the fucked up ambient that academia kind of like offers is like worth it like students are kind of like worth all of that it's brutal man this whole thing is brutal this whole thing is brutal but <clears throat> like i don't know like i i do think about it i do think about my ancestors and how much they work, you know, so like that's the least I, I mean, I think that I could do mm -hmm. is to teach others, you know, like, and that's the least I could do. So like, 
yes, it is a huge deal that I'm first generation PhD student. No, it's not. It's the least that I can do, you know, at least for me. So it's very, it's, <clears throat> it's very complicated. Like we're, we're battling different wars, not just trying to get that book done. Unfortunately, you need that dissertation and you need that book and you need those articles in order to keep advancing and in order for people in certain circles to pay attention to you. But I don't know, like at the beginning in the podcast, I changed my name to Babelito precisely because I thought I was going to lose gigs because I thought people mm -hmm. were going to look at my record and be like, we're not going to hire Babelito. Like, no way, you know, yeah. no tiene pelos en la lengua. But actually, it was the opposite. I I presented in venues that I would have never done it, you know, before. We 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 presented at NYU, and even though it was for a student union, I don't fucking care. I presented at NYU. Now it's different. Now I actually am recognized for my work. But at the beginning, if it wasn't for the podcast, I wouldn't would not have a lot of those experiences. So, well, but it, very it complements each other, no? Now it is. Now my teaching is highly influenced by the podcast, and the podcast is highly influenced by the teaching. The same thing with with the with the videos. Even though, like the videos, because of the nature of everything, like my husband does pretty much everything, like the animating and everything. But it's a series of like nonstop conversations about how the writing is going to look like, about how the animations are going to look like, about the themes, about the in people that are going to in we're going to invite. So it's like it's like 24/7 producing the videos basically. Um, mm -hmm. but now I'm looking now I'm using the videos for my classes, you know, because there's certain things that I want to illustrate that like a two-dimensional image cannot. And now I can I can show more So it's cool. It's fun. It's just that all of these external platforms and venues are get on the way of getting the traditional academic jobs done, which is like, again, get those essays ready and publish and, and um, get that book ready, all of that. So that's taking a little bit longer. But again, I have a job. I have health insurance, <laughs> and which is important. I, yes, and I have great students, so I think it's I think it's okay. I think I, I think I think I'm all right. We'll talk to me in three years. Still working on that. <laughs> What happens? But do you see that changing like soon? That process, especially right now, with the with what is happening and and the way that. You know, the, the way that COVID has changed teaching and the way that COVID has changed the way, uh, the way that universities are reorganizing and the way that uh, students are not coming back to re-enroll, to, you know, universities are getting really affected by COVID. And academia is getting really affected by it. Uh, teaching is getting really affected. So, it, you know, this whole chain of uh, change, do you think it will affect the way that 
tenure is going to be uh, get. I hope uh, that structure is going to be destructed in a way. It, I was think I was just thinking about this. I'm not kidding. Because I'm thinking, okay, I'm visiting professor for two years. I think they're about to announce my position. I think it's three or five more years. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen between three and five years. But let's say I stay for the as a visiting gig for another three years. That's five years that could have been used towards tenure, tenure. right? So mm-hmm. are they going to count that or not? Um, if they don't, if they do... Are they only going to count the things that will advance them as an A1 research college? Our unsettling journeys and all of this like community that we're developing, all these scholars that are going on board. When you have your bibliography sending you emails about how much they like the videos, I, you think you're accomplishing something, right? Because academia is changing and things are virtual and things are electronic and now other videos. And you think that should count towards tenure, but I'm sure it will not. I think academia is dead. And I think academia has been dead for like a decade. It hasn't (laughs) like no one, no one has told them. (laughs) But right. But it's like, it's like, it's like a threatening zombie. Like it's gonna be. It's gonna take time to fully kill it. So, I think. I think you and I are of the generation that have to play both sides of the game. We have to be the generation that makes one of the final pushes for this to be over. But it doesn't mean that we're gonna see that final push in our lifetime, you know. Or mm-hmm. we could, but we have to be ready to one, adapt to those changes, and maybe universities want you to have. I don't know, maybe the digital humanities are going to count towards tenured um, to a tenured position. Maybe not. So we have to make sure that we do we participate in, in the digital humanities, but at the same time we participate in in just the humanities, you know, like and I don't know. Like I really I can't. Yeah, like say do the that. traditional the traditional path but also do this new way to kind of like open the doors for the ones that come behind us in a way. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's our generation. I think our advisors were the last ones that truly went the traditional way from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the hope is that like scholars that I know will nunca me hubieran pelado. <laughs> If it wasn't like I actually came out with a book, now they know who I am and they're asking me to collaborate because of a YouTube video, right? So that's that's showing you that they, which are that last generation, recognize that that there's a value in the digital humanity, something that maybe they didn't push or maybe they Mm -hmm. tried and pushed it, but it's our generation that starts doing it. But again... The fact that we are a transitional generation doesn't mean that we're like the the beginning of the new academic generation. So how is academia yes. going to look like? I don't know, but it is going to be different. Is it going to be in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? You know, like after COVID-19, anything can happen now. Anything can sure. happen. 
The only thing the that we can normality. Right. <laughs> and that, and that's the thing. Like, that's that that was a good exercise. Like, what's normal? Like that that's that's a myth that doesn't exist. Yeah. Reality doesn't exist. Like history is exactly. all important. So everything it's it's in transition. Everything it's a development. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to be prepared for the next lockdown. We have to be prepared for all of these things that that a rich, white, 1970s art historian who was only preoccupied with aesthetics didn't have to. Now we have to think about aesthetics. Now we have to think about identity. Now we have to think about a lot of other things. Race, gender. Mm-hmm. Which I'm glad that they're part of the conversations, but those are things that require different skills, require different experiences, and those are things that a lot of the older generations didn't have to. And they have their fancy houses, <laughs> and they have all of their books, and they did it, you know. So that's why I'm saying, like, I think our advisors were that last generation. I think they're the ones who had to accept that their students might do something different. And we were those students that are starting to push the envelope. And maybe it's going to be our students that finally going to get that change. Something done. different. Yes. yes, I mean, it's it's as simple as the fact that I'm writing a dissertation in an architecture program that it doesn't center in architecture. Mm, yeah exactly you know, it doesn't have to like my that's what i'm saying like my my husband is applying to grad schools and he said like, should i go here i said you need the paper like mm-hmm. we you will put together your committee and now with zoom and all this stuff you can have a committee from members from all over the world and you could like before too because that there were telephones right so so it's it's something that I think this is I this might seem discombobulated but I'm going somewhere. <laughs> so I think the myth of modernity it's highly tied to the myth of mobility. The idea that you could travel around the world or you could study in other places that you could go visit here and learn there and do your research here and that was part it's a complementary state of being modern. Quote unquote whatever that means. Mm-hmm. So the myth of modernity was tied to privilege and it's still tied to privilege, right? Like the 1% are in a way so much more mobile than we could ever be or like the next, or like our generations of future or babelitos or whatever could ever be. Mm-hmm. But that myth of mobility, it's crumbling. Because in to a certain degree, COVID was a result of mobility. I've been, I've been, I, I started to obsess. I started to obsess about this pandemia in December. I was like, it's coming. It's coming. It's in China. And China is an international spot. And everybody goes there and everybody comes from there. And then the next thing I heard is that like people in like Milan Fashion Week were spreading it. I was like... That those, the mobile people are the ones who started this whole entire shit, right? It was the The 1%. Right. The mobility of modernity is the one that started all this shit. So mobility, it's not and should not and hopefully dies soon because 
Mobility destroys the environment. Mobility, it's a source of privilege and it shouldn't be like that. And because of mobility, now we have different technologies that we didn't have before. So the same technologies that were created because of mobility are deconstructed and destroying the myth of mobility. So I don't have to leave the desert to publish my book if I don't want to. You know what I'm saying? So because of that, academia, like, like I, I was invited to talk in Yale. <laughs> and because of everything that happened, I didn't have to go to Yale to talk. And it's already on my resume. And it counts. You, right? you can talk to, like, you can talk in Yale from where you are. Exactly. So It doesn't require you to move. Yes. Right. So... And that's something that before it was impossible, impossible. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about how academia is in a way shifting with the myths of modernity tied or contingent to mobility, then you realize that it's bound to be destroyed, that it's bound to change. Yes. Not to say that we don't wish to travel around the world and destroy other environments with our tourism, right? <laughs> we all want to go see that perfectly pristine spot in the middle of the Andes that some fucking influencer did a selfie at, you know? Not to say that we don't want to experience those cultures a lot of humbled because that's so embedded in our colonial beings. But to be a fully developed human being with knowledge and education, you don't have to leave your town anymore. So that already is a huge leap and a huge change in what academia meant 20, 30, 40 years ago. How is that going to affect scholars of color? I think to a certain degree, depends on how much we play that game or not, you know? And again, everything can, everything can change tomorrow. Everything that I'm saying right now can just be completely dismissed by some fucked up administration in the country, you know? True. Fuck. But, <laughs> don't, the, don't, yes, don't even. But at the same time, right, right. Just like you and I talking from the United States. Um, but at the mm. same time, I don't know. That's like one of the few things that I'm hopeful that there's certain dialogues that are being held right now, despite mobility, not because of mobility, but despite mobility. And that to me is exciting, right? That to me is really exciting. Like this perhaps five or 10 years ago could have never happened unless I went to Philly or you came to California. And mm -hmm. now we have this maybe some white scholar out there will listen and then be like, whoop, and interrupt their day for at least two minutes. That's all we can wish for. You know, that's all we can wish for. Yes. So it's as detrimentally, as, as horrible as technologies were for the development of that of modernity, which is tied to the destruction of the environment. It's also taking us bringing us to this place. So we just gotta use what we have and we have to take advantage of that. I hope that made sense because I feel like I went off on a tangent, but in my brain. No, no. In my brain. It, it, I mean, 
it was it was a bit of a tangent, but it made sense. It uh, I I totally got it, and I totally understand that the precisely the the idea of of modernity and and mobility and how we might got to a point where we have to start moving. Not we have to stop moving. We we might not need to move as much because we that... have other other means to do it. We have other means to to communicate and to be present in other ways. And I'm not one to talk, right? And of the country, but I don't know, like, like learn, for example. Yes, but you're you're teaching in Chicago from California. <laughs> exactly. And you're 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 not traveling every like every week, like 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 you said, like th that professor in the '70s that live in his house in California that had the money and had the tenure and was paid uh, that much that could take a plane every single week on a Monday to travel to Cali to Chicago, teach Tuesday to, uh, mm. to Thursday and I travel back on Friday and spend the weekend with his family and then travel back. I, I met scholars that taught in California and in Vegas. They will go back and forth. Mm -hmm back and forth you know like so i don't know like i am hopeful but i'm also not holding my breath that the academia is gonna change to my advantage or to the advantage of of my peoples they are finally recognizing that there needs to be a change but the change is not happening quick enough we're having conversations about diversity and they don't even know what the hell that means They think diversity means having one black professor in the in any department. And even like black scholars will tell you, like, that's not diversity. That's not what we as a group been struggling for fucking hundreds of years. So that, yes. I'm not holding my breath for the change, but I see that the change is in everybody's face and it's inevitable. And some people don't know what to do. So institutions are changing, institutions are crumbling, museums are closing their doors, like a lot of things are happening precisely because of that. And those institutional changes are going to affect us. So I think that the only thing we can do is the darle, 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 por aquí, por allá, por donde se pueda, because nos van a And you see, vida. exactly. And you see that happening in, in many of this, I mean, this year's... Um, round of applications they say that it was going to be bad already and and yes i mean i haven't seen much it's not yet time we're still very early in the in the year to see the the year you know the the application rounds and they they already said that it was going to be bad but the ones that i've seen they already started to look the way we knew they were going to look they all they all are looking for diversity they all are looking for someone that can contribute to the diverse curriculum of their institution and someone that can contribute to the uh, you know like this that in many times can sound like i just want to see who they hire to see how diverse like how really diversity like what diversity means to them how or how performative this diversity is what they're right in what they're writing 
Yeah, so that's why that's why I told you in the beginning of the podcast which version you want me to perform because I I I I was joking, of course, but that's <laughs> what I have to do when I sit down and write anything. Like, am I performing? Mm-hmm. Am I performing the scholar? You know, that needs money <laughs> from these rich white people. Am I performing? this down-to-earth Mexicano, you know, like with street cred, even though I have none. Um, which one do you want me to perform, you know? Like, which one do you want me to do? But I feel like at least, at least with all of these changes, I have to perform less personalities just because people recognize that, people recognize that, that there's a lot of problems behind some of these performances i don't know what i'm saying anymore but you know what i'm talking about yes but also the institutions are the institutions are you know at least having to hopefully perform less that that uh you know that search for diversity and will hire more diverse profiles it's just they they need to figure out what the fuck diversity means for them until they don't figure that out because diversity in Chicago doesn't mean the same as diversity in a suburb in Kentucky, you know? Like the, the, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be the same, but it doesn't mean the same thing. So True. What, what, is, what, is, what is the diversity needs for that community that you're serving to? You know what I mean? Is it, is yes, it exactly. Different? And it's, and diversity doesn't mean the same. And and I'm gonna say explicitly because it it was one of the jobs precisely that I was like, like I really want to apply to this. I don't know if they will even look at my profile because it's such a prestigious university and it's one of those that they want you with you know the book and the thousand articles already published. But what does diversity means to Princeton? And what does diversity means to Chicago or what does diversity means to uh, New Mexico? Right. right. You know, am I diverse enough to Princeton? Am I diverse enough to New Mexico? Maybe in New Mexico, I'm not, or Texas, Uh, Texas and Austin. Like I was, I applied this year to Texas and Austin. I was not diverse enough. They had already like three Mexicanists. In, in UT Austin. Yeah. So, you know, it was like I was not a, a token of diversity for UT Austin. But if I maybe if I applied to Princeton this year, I that I know they don't have anyone that is a Mexicanist or a Latin Americanist, if I can call myself a Latin Americanist. I think that I can call myself a Latin Americanist. Um, they don't have anyone. You are to them, you are, yeah. Yeah, and, and it is. And so, it's, like, it's it's the nuances of those ideas. And that's the thing. I I always, and I don't know if we have time because I have another meeting, but um, mm-hmm. I it's like the whole anti-colonial and, and decolonial thing, right, that you wanted to talk about. Yes. I always think about the D word because we have certain ideas and expectations of what a decolonized world is supposed to look like, even though it's impossible. Like we're a product of the colonial period as much as you hate it. 
from the calzones que te pones hasta los tacos que te comes. Like, yeah. it's just what it is. Um, the same thing with diversity. Like, diversity, it's this desired state, utopic state. Not that it can never be happened. It's just not, it's not going to happen overnight because of, you know, like, because of a couple of events that happen. So I want to believe. I just don't believe. Hope is a form of empathy. <laughs> And I don't believe in empathy because empathy only serves you. Um, so I just, I just wish that instead of going with the, going with the grain and saying, oh, everybody in the country is diversifying. We got to do that. Instead of doing that, I wish people would sit down and think about really what diversity means for themselves and for their institutions. And when they say they want more professors of color, don't mean to hire a couple of tokens, you know, that they, they actually... Exactly, because if not, it starts to sound more like Said's Orientalism than actually diversity. You know, exactly. it starts to sound like exoticism. Right. Than... That's exactly what's happening right now. That's exactly what's happening right now. You know, but at least that's how it feels. At least, like prior to 2020, professors like us maybe had a couple of chances, and now we have a lot more chances. So we gotta ride the wave, people. Like apply, <laughs> apply to it all. Um, yes. Hopefully this is not just the wave. Hopefully this is just the way of the future, which should be. Pero mira, güey. I've seen, I've seen all these changes come and go. That I, again, as I said, even though I see the change happening, I see that things are in people's faces and it's almost inevitable. I'm also not holding my breath. All I have to do is once again, keep going, keep producing content and... Ultimately, as what I was telling my suegra yesterday, we just gotta take care of each other. That's it. And keep the and keep the connections, you know, the the networks kind of like alive and and just um, helping each other because that's that's the only way that we are gonna be able to do something. That's right. Um, I know you have to leave. Uh, I know you have something uh, next and lined up, but um, I mean, and we have many more things to talk about and this could like continue for hours. Maybe we should do a, a second one. I'm, this flu, this flu. So like, yes, maybe we can do a second, a second episode. So I'm, I'm down. I'm down. If you ask me to talk about myself and since I don't have social media to just like show how, how wonderful life is even though it's all bullshit like i, I, I will do cool. yes yeah, so. yes cool well maybe then you're done we're we're like ya ya dijiste ya lo ya lo ya lo palabramos tenemos entonces el el segundo episodio próximamente nada más nos ponemos de acuerdo y lo y nos y nos organizamos para grabar like but uh what <laughs> but to close this one um the two sections to close this episode uh in this quarantine where we don't have much access to libraries or any other media well 
spaces uh, with with books. We're mostly surrounded by our books or the books that we carry in either our laptops or devices or whatever. And in your case, that you have been moving from one place to the other, from Chicago to California, what is the book that has been following you in this uh, time? What is your favorite book that has been following you uh, around uh, this couple of months? The, my book, it's by Michael Rolf Trillo. Déjame acordarme bien del título. Mm-hmm. I would get the, the title wrong. It's called the silencing, the silence, silencing the past, power, and the production of history, by Michael Rolf Trillo. That's my Bible. I've read that like four times, I think, and I have it in PDF. I give it to all my students, regardless if it's even a sign. I always just send it to my students. Um, that book, that book fits every single step of my career. That book is the methodologies of unsettling journeys again um, on YouTube, and that's that's what I do every time I write. I it's to deconstruct silences. I am not a historian. History is a series of interpretations. So when you start thinking about interpreting the silences of history as opposed to trying to write history, everything it's huh. so again it's silencing the past. By Michael Rothtrilo, rest in peace. He was a brilliant Haitian, um, Haitian scholar. That thing, it's online. I think you can just Google it and find the whole entire thing. It's on PDF. In cool. our first video, we talked about silences of history, and we tell our viewers take this in each one of our videos as a sure. some of those silences. So that's that's the. I book. will yes, I will I will definitely post the. Um... The links, the links to your videos and the links to, I mean, I post normally the links to the, to the books and to the, to the, um, yes, to the, to the books. But now that you mentioned that you have the videos too, I will definitely post that. And the last uh, section of the podcast, which is a section that I took precisely from one of my favorite podcasts and your podcast, Latinos Who Lunch. Shout out to you guys. Uh, what is a book, series, podcast, music that you would like to recommend to us? And this is your moment to shine, Babelito. This is like your section. I am obsessed with Colombian music. Anything that the Colombianos produce, it's gorgeous, it's amazing. And at the forefront of a new generation of Colombian musicians is um, the leader of the band, the Meridian Brothers. So the Meridian Brothers was my door towards everything from Lido Pimienta to Combo Chimbita, anything. So if you want to listen to good experimental slash um, Colombian slash post-punk, Afro-Colombian, and everything in between, just listen to the Meridian Brothers. In fact, they actually just came out with an album not too long ago. And the name of the album is, give me one second, it's Cumbia Siglo XXI. Yes. And I think that was one of the recommendations of the podcast. But this man has come out with like 10 albums or probably more. He produced um, Elvis Alvarez, or Elvis Alvarez, I think is his name. 
Um, he produced one of my favorite albums of last of 2018, which was no 2019, which was Colombiana by Niño Delche, and that's a brilliant post-punk, oh, that's cool post punk Colombian Gitano album. And I listened to that thanks to our recommendation at Latinos Lunch. Like you mentioned that, and I listened to that. It's really good. Obsessed, still obsessed with the album. I actually was going to interview him, and the day of the interview, they cancel everything because of COVID. I was getting uh. ready for questions as they cancel the interview, and he only had one. One um, Nino del Che only had one performance in the states, and I flew hashtag mobility just to go interview him. <laughs> so um, <laughs> anything that that this guy does, his um, it's the band is Meridian Brothers. Another important um, project he has is Los Pirañas, which is psychedelic cumbia. Punto. It's the weirdest. Cool most amazing thing and also the stuff that he did for Nino Delche that's my recommendation because as weird and as strange as it sounds I think it perfectly encaptures what we're going through right now well and of course my recommendation is to listen to Latinos Who Lunch and I will ask you to uh, tell us uh, where to follow you the your um podcast your youtube channel like everything where we can find you and your content so you can find latinos who launch in every single platform i i don't i i don't even know if we have tiktok now but i'm sure we will at some point um, <laughs> everyone probably fabi fabi is preparing his tiktok <laughs> yeah he apparently does like like recipes like um tiktok recipes um I left social media um, on October 1st of 2018, seven, no, 17, 17, and I've never been happier in my life. Um, and I'm so you cannot find me anywhere except in the, um, you can send me an email or you can send us an email on Unsettling Journeys. It is unsettlingjourneys at gmail.com. And then mm -hmm. my, my university email is eortega at uic.edu so you can connect with me that um, um and again unsettling journeys on youtube latinos who launch everywhere and yes please subscribe and como dice mi señora favorita que hace recetas dedito para arriba y nada para abajo oh, <laughs> perfecto pues ya quedamos entonces para otro episodio nos nos volvemos a poner de acuerdo para grabar otro E, thank you very much for your time. This was great. This was amazing. I hope that we um, record uh, the next one very soon. Thank you very much. See you soon. Anything that you would like to ask to add? No, just I can't wait to actually talk about architecture. I had all these ideas in mind and we didn't get into them. So yes, we'll, we'll do it next I time. I know. I'm, well, <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please follow us on From the Margins podcast on Instagram and on From the Margins Perspectives on Architecture on Facebook, where you can find links to the webpage and more information on the links about the topics we discussed during the episode and the channels to communicate with me. I would love to hear from you. 
and your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us. The more subscribers and better reviews means more representation. Thanks again.